Welcome to Tactical Recon, the place where we find kingdom-building strategies through scholarship, leadership, and action. And here's your host. Hey, hey, this is Michelle Merch, filling in for Elder Paul Coviello. I'm sitting in the studio here for Tactical Recon with the Reverend Dr. Paul Michael Raymond. Hi, Pastor. How are you doing today? Good afternoon, Michelle. Nice to be here. Well, it's great to have you here on this cold, blustery day. Well, since it is that time of the season once again of the Incarnation, let's talk about some of the practicalities of it as far as it concerns the individual as well as the church and even the culture. I think that's a great idea, especially when the Incarnation is cutesified in our culture today. Yeah, certainly we keep seeing the babe in the in the manger rather than the king on the throne, how he has brought about all of his will in our time in history and what we need to do as far as that reality is concerned. But here is what I wanted to talk about this afternoon. When we talk about the incarnation, usually what people focus upon is Jesus came, as the scriptures rightly declare, to save his people from their sins. But what are the effects? Is there just that one effect? What does that mean? What does that even mean, saving a people, his people, from their sins? What is the effect or the the overall effects, plural, of the incarnation? Was it efficacious? And if it was efficacious, to what extent was it efficacious? To what extent did it have a power? And then, of course, on the heels of that, we have to ask, what is the evidence of that effectiveness? And then how is that effectiveness achieved? If, if we are saved from our sins, how, how is that achieved? How does God save us from our sins? And it's not only based on the justifying act of the atonement. There's something greater than that, which puts us into a place of responsibility as far as the mortification of those sins, which we have been saved from. And then, of course, when we, when we think of, you know, what, what are we to do as far as our responsibility, you know, the, the responsibility of the individual, the saved individual, as far as the mortification of sin. How do we go about that? What, what are we targeting? So those are the things I wanted to discuss this afternoon. Okay, so firstly, to what extent? And the extent of the incarnation as it is applied to the believer is total. It's total. It deals with the mind as well as the, uh, the function of the body. In other words, how we act, how we behave actionably. So it is a total change, a total transformation of the individual, of those in the church, and of course it should extend universally into the culture. So this is what we have to think about. So the, the incarnation is just not to be looked at. It's not to be looked at just for the individual that now we're holy, now we, we can lead a quiet life, a pious life of peace and and, and holiness, but it's beyond that. It's a total transformation of all things, not only the individual, but even of the of the created order. We have to be able to recognize that the incarnation establishes a creative order, which is given to us by the work of Christ in order to reconstruct and transform the culture into the image of, of justice, of righteousness, and 
and equity. So when we look at the incarnation, it is a total, a total incarnation, which is efficacy is, efficacy is total to the individual, the church, and the community. It's interesting that today we have a sense of compartmentalization with our 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 faith, where we often like to regulate it to, you know, the prayer closet or, you know, check in and check out on Sunday when if what you're saying is true, it should completely shake the foundations of the earth as God's people live in light of the incarnation. Okay, so then, so what is the evidence of the applied, let's, let's call it the incarnation applied, the applicability of the incarnation? What is the evidence? Well, for the individual, it is the hungering and the thirsting. It's the transformation of the mind. And of course, it must be then embodied in life. And in other words, the, the truth of the incarnation, the truth of Christianity, the truth of the, the justification and the sanctification of the individual, Truth is only rightly believed by the individual to the extent that it is embodied in the entirety of that person's life. It is the hungering and the thirsting after righteousness. Transformation, that, that incarnation's power of the transformed, uh, the transformation of the incarnation's power must be evident and actionable because the, by the new birth, because the new birth by the Spirit's act is efficacious. It has a real evidence to it. So when you talk about hungering and thirsting after righteousness, what the individual should be looking for in their life is a focus upon the things of God, the kingdom of God, the building, the building of the kingdom of God, the advancing of the kingdom of God, the ministration of, of the church. How do we involve ourselves in the church? How do we deal with uh, our sin, which is what I'll get to in a moment. How do we deal with the community and all of these things? Because we are desiring to see God's work in the world evidenced. And that evidence begins with, with us. It is evidenced with us first and foremost, and then moves outside of us into the community. First the church, then the community. John Calvin said this. He said, I do not see how anyone can trust that he has redemption and righteousness in the cross of Christ and life in his death unless he relies chiefly upon a true participation in Christ himself for those benefits would not come to us unless Christ first be made ours. And this is what we have to recognize. How then, the next question, how then is this evidence achieved? How how does now some might say generally speaking well it's achieved through the incarnation but what does that mean well the incarnation speaks of christ coming as a babe of course he's dying on the cross for us the atonement the blood of christ is applied to us but when we are transformed what does that even mean it means we don't from that point on only look for salvation we look for the Savior himself. Too many people are looking for salvation without, and missing the Savior. And what God is teaching us is that we are yoked with Christ. We are in union with him through the work of the Spirit. And then we have that communion. So this idea of, of abiding in Christ, we are 
in Christ. You think about we are we are engrafted into the vine, which speaks of life-giving power. We are the bride, and he is the groom, which speaks of that intimacy. We are also spoken of as the family of God, which speaks of us corporately as, as a, a unified corporate body, the household of faith. We're also spoken of as the building. We are lively stones, a visible manifestation of how we are now unified in union with Christ, evidenced and visible in the community, making an impact in the community. So, so this is something that we have to remember. Not only that we're saved, but we're in union with Christ, and that is the heart of the gospel. The elect are partakers of the Lord. We are engrafted into him. We are told to put on Christ and this is so important because we keep thinking that we are uh, separate from, from Christ. We are uh, creatures that are saved, but not yoked to Christ. And that's something that we have to recognize as part of the atonement being applied to us. So we achieve our position as believers by being yoked, by being in union with him so that we have communion. So now, what are we to see as this evidence? What is that evidence in the practical realm of our individual piety? And when we talk about piety, we don't mean pietistic. We mean holiness, to have a good conscience before God, not having any secret sins which are tripping us up, whereby we are dealing with secret sins of anger and bitterness, lust especially, uh, uh, covetousness and sloth, lukewarmness, indifference, frustration, hopelessness, impatience, selfishness. All of these things uh, trip us up, and sometimes we harbor these things. So what does the incarnation do? What is this union with Christ really establishing us? Well, it establishes us a will to mortify, a will to mortify the flesh, to really clean out that that secret closet. Because once we harbor secret sins, we are then hamstrung so that we can't do anything without really being a hypocrite. And how many, how many pastors today are involved in pornography or how many church leaders or how many congregate members? And, and what you find in the pulpit is no one's talking about that. Because Maybe because they're involved in it themselves and they don't want to be hypocritical. But we need to open up that, that wound and clean it out. Pick off, and I hate to use the analogy here, it's disgusting, but pick the scab off and get, get that pus out so that the, the, the wound is finally uh, cleansed. But we don't want to talk about that because it's uncomfortable. Well, we need to talk about things that are uncomfortable. In order to be holy and, 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 and really having that union, how could we be in union with Christ as his bride and be adulterous? So this idea of the incarnation, the idea of, of the Christmas celebration, should move us to think about how we are to be holy. How we, we, we speak of, oh, holy night. Well, it was a holy night, but it wasn't holy only for Jesus. It should be holy for us as we are yoked to the Savior by the Spirit. And, and that's so important. So we must recognize that our union with Christ means our true and ultimate identity is found in Him. That is, that is important. Christ says, 
Abide in me and I in you. In John 1, 4, 13, we read this. John tells us this. We know that we abide in him and he in us. There it is. They're in Christ because he has given us of his spirit. And that spirit given to us is not just some theological construct or theological uh, thing that we talk about. That spirit given to us means power to to mortify sin. It is the dominion spirit which is taking dominion over our flesh. And if we can't take dominion over our flesh, and, and the reason why sometimes we don't do that is because we make excuses for it. Well, we have a besetting sin. Well, if you have a besetting sin, you need to focus on that sin and make sure it's no longer besetting. You need to fight the good fight of faith. Now, does it mean that you'll be eradicated totally? No, it means that when it does crop up and it raises its ugly serpentine head, that you're able to beat it down. You don't listen to the serpent's temptation and then enter in. You deal with it. It's not a sin to be tempted. It is a sin to enter into temptation. And that's what we need to recognize. So whenever we think of the incarnation, when we think of the Christmas celebration, we think of being in union with Christ, being a part of that body, and that body must be holy. Now, let's one other one other point. I believe that the reason why the Church of Jesus Christ is not growing rightly, and I don't mean by numbers because of the entertainment and the theater that churches use to bring people in. That is not growing in grace. That is growing in number. That doesn't mean a thing. I believe that the church is not growing. And we we, we might say even the Reformed churches, those faithful churches, is because of the secret sins that are still at work in the members, in the fathers, in the husbands, in the wives, in the children. Now, of course, the buck stops at the father, the husband. He is the one who is to educate the child. And a lot of times we see children because we think, well, we're reformed now and we've got it all together. We don't need to catechize our children because they're reformed and we're, we're, we're okay. No, there needs to be a diligent exercise of education so that the children know by the time they're 10, by the time, and that's late, but by the time they're, they're 8, 9, 10 years, they need to be asking some serious theological questions because they already have a groundwork, a foundation of theology. So when you ask them, you know, how are we saved from our sins? They need to point to the cross. They need to point to the bloodshedding of Christ. How are we sanctified? By the Spirit's indwelling. What does it mean to be in Christ? What is Christmas all about? And on and on and on. But we're, we're not doing that because what we need, we need theologians who are ready to tackle the problems of the world by the time they're 15, like during the days of John Owen or John Calvin or any other reformers or Puritans. But we've been so, so dumbed down, even theologically and in our, in our world, that we think that, well, uh, children don't need to know anything until they're. But you find the same people saying, well, my child is ready for taking of the communion. Well, okay, let's catechize them. Let's see wh- where they are. And there are some children that are taking communion that don't know the first thing about uh, the, the eff- efficacy of the atonement. So we need to make sure that the fathers understand that they have a duty. But if they're locked up in their secret sins and they're not mortifying those sins, they will not be blessed. 
and then we're going to skip another generation and maybe even another generation until we we're under the the heavy hand of tyranny all over again so these are the things that we must as ministers and as as elders and deacons have to address in our congregation the goal of the christian life is piety not merely knowledge but an understanding of the gospel that impacts the will and in turn transforms the life. That's what Christianity is all about. Piety, if it's true, is an expression of the reality of the adoption that we have in Christ, a reverence for God and, and living with a single eye to his glory. This is what the children of God are called to do and to be. Without that, no man can say that they are truly a saved individual. Thank you, Pastor. Thank you. I, this is a very sobering admonishment and reminder. How would you counsel someone who's listening to this and says, my life is spiraling. Where do I start? Where, how can I get back on track? I feel depressed and dead inside. You know, what, what do you say to that person? Well, there will be seasons of that. There's always seasons of that because we're in the flesh. We still are in the flesh. We're, we're still dealing like the Apostle Paul in chapter 7 of Romans. So that's not something to be too worried about. I think the reason why God orchestrates that season is to humble us and to recognize that we are nothing without Christ. Now, the practical way that we get out of that is to start reading the Word of God, fellowship, study, worship, communion with brethren, prayer, mortification. Uh, I think uh, to have a steady diet of social media is dangerous. We need to abstain from that for a season and get back into our devotions, our readings, and, and even biographies. Biographies are very important because then we'll see the human side of these great giants of the faith. So there's a practical way. Another practical way is talk to your minister, talk to brothers and sisters in the Lord, uh, have that communion. I know it's, it's very difficult for single folk who don't have a, a, a spouse where do they find comfort? Well, they need to be more involved in church, church life, church community, instead of being sequestered in their own homes and, and wallowing in their own sins, uh, being involved in ministry, serving. Service is good. Service is edifying. So these are things that we can do to get out of our depression. Another part of depression, another part of, of this is uh, we are just wallowing in self-pity. Self-pity is a damaging, damaging things. So we want to be, we want to be really careful not to go there. No, I think that'll do it. So for our holiday season, let's get back to our position of reading in the mornings, reading in the evenings. Uh, you know, it, John, I think it was either Cotton Mather or John Cotton. I think it was, I think it was John Cotton. He said that before he went to bed, he would, he would read a little Calvin because he wanted uh, the sweetness of, of John Calvin upon his lips just before he went to sleep. And, and I think that is the wise counsel. Read some of the Puritans, read the Psalms, read uh, the Proverbs in the morning, the Psalms in the evening. Get back to devotion, get back to communion. If we are truly in union with Christ, we are part of his body, then we will want that union and want that communion. That is the most fulfilling aspect of Christianity. We we put forth the effort to 
pay the bills because we have to. You know, we work, we clock in, we clock out. If you want to get fit, you have to put in the effort. If you want to thrive spiritually, it's not a, it's not about coasting and, and just enjoying the ride. You've got to put forth the effort. Exactly. A steady diet of good food will make a fit body. The steady diet of, of spiritual food will make your mind strong and union with Christ will be sweeter and communion would be more effective. Well, thank you, Pastor. Thanks for chatting with us today and the serious reminders of the the total transformation that comes with the incarnation that completely changed the world and ought to change the life of every Christian as they go forth boldly. Thanks for joining us today. To learn more about Tactical Recon, visit us on the web at www.tacticalrecon.org. The Tactical Recon Podcast was brought to you by New Geneva Christian Leadership Academy and the Institute for Theonomic Reformation. To learn more, please visit our website at www.tacticalrecon.org.